0: That Naturopathic Podcast, TNP.
1: Hello there. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Cara Denisio.
0: And I'm Dr. David Miller, and we hear your frustrations. This show is for you.
1: This show is for you if you're feeling like your current healthcare strategy is not getting to the root cause or the underlying reasons for your health.
0: This show is for you if you've been told that you're fine, but you definitely don't feel very well.
1: This show is for you if you're walking out of your doctor's office with one, two, three, four, or even five medications without any mention of diet, lifestyle, or a long-term game plan.
0: This show is for you if you've got several specialists taking care of you, but no one is really putting it all together.
1: This show is for you if you believe that health should be part of healthcare. These problems have solutions. We know it. Our patients know it.
0: And we want you to know it.
1: Naturopathic medicine is the solution that you need to know about. Hi, welcome to another episode of That Naturopathic Podcast. I'm Dr. Cara Danicio,
0: And I'm Dr. David Miller.
1: And today we are joined by Dr. Leah Saunders, and I am really excited to chat to, uh, to Leah today. And it's all about sleep.
0: And you had a good sleep last night, you just said.
1: I had the best sleep.
0: So it's important. It was
1: a design, well-designed sleep. I didn't think I was going to sleep, but I kind of pulled some naturopathic tools out. So uh, we uh, want Leah to talk to us today about all the importance of sleep and how to kind of uh, consciously construct a good sleep too.
0: And Leah is sort of a new mom, so I think sleep is a precious resource for her. Absolutely. Is, that, is that true? It <laughs> is.
2: So welcome, Leah. How are you doing today? I am doing fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here, and I'm so excited to be a part of this um, podcast and what you both are doing to get naturopathic medicine out there to the public and to more people. Well, thank you.
0: Yeah, thanks so much. It's people like you. We really want to uh, show the good work that you do, and, and we're so pumped to have you on.
1: Yeah. So, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? You're a new mom. You're a naturopathic doctor in a great clinic in Uxbridge. So, just tell us a little bit about your practice and what
2: you have going on there. Sure. So, I'm a big believer that when you have your health, you have everything. And so, I really like working with patients who are motivated and aspiring to live the life that they want. And I want to help them get do that with the health that they need to back them up. So, when you have great mental fortitude and optimal energy and physical well-being, you can do anything and you can have anything. So, sleep for me underlies so many aspects of our health because it gives us the energy we need to show up to do what we love. It helps us balance our our regul- or and regulate our emotions. It helps us improve our immune system and ultimately prevent so many chronic disease uh, processes. So when I look at my practice, it's really working mostly with women from I would say in the postpartum to peri and postmenopause who are struggling with energy, right? Life is demanding and uh, as moms and I think as women, we tend to do a lot and we also tend to put everybody else before ourselves. And at some point that typically uh, comes crashing down around us or around my patients and we need to rebuild and that starts with sleep
1: what was the change for you so when you had your babies a year old now yeah yeah yes. and is that was that the eye opener to you as to yeah
2: that? absolutely Why so you really I love sleep and I was such a good sleeper before uh, having Kaylin. Having but the, I think one thing looking back is that whenever sleep was disrupted for me, it was a sign that my body was out of balance for some reason and it often came back to stress. And so it was a good objective perspective for me to understand that something was going on with my nervous system and then insert baby and the sleep patterns that they have or do not have. (laughs) And it was definitely an eye opener to understand how many people are are functioning in sleep deprivation and how easily you are affected by sleep deprivation in all aspects, maybe without even knowing. And so for me, I essentially had to sleep train myself back into getting a good night's sleep after having such a disrupted pattern for so many months
0: and leah what was your kind of sleep problem like did you did you have problems like falling asleep or uh, staying asleep or what was your sort of brand of sleep problem
2: i would fall asleep okay because of feeling so exhausted, which I think is a common uh, pattern. But then when I would be interrupted in the night, say to get up and and breastfeed, or um, if if baby woke up and crying, I would find it extremely hard to get back to sleep. And at one point I remember thinking, I can't remember the last time I slept more than an hour and a half in a row. And that's a problem that we'll talk about, um, why we need longer sleep periods and longer sleep duration. And I I think it's a lot of things that come together for a lot of women in terms of waking up with that restless mind, right? And not being able to shut off.
0: Is that sort of the typical story that you're seeing from, from the patients? That yeah, to absolutely.
2: I think a lot of women come in and will say, um, you know, I haven't slept the same since I have kids or, or now I have kids and we're so busy and they go to bed and then I finally get time for myself. And, you know, it's 11 o'clock before I can hit the pillow, but then my mind is just racing a million miles a minute and it's hard to unwind and decompress. Mm-hmm. And then they might fall asleep and, st- and then wake up at commonly between like 3 and 5 a.m., and have trouble getting back to sleep and then maybe just get back to sleep by the time that they have to get up again for the day.
0: Is that the same sort of stuff that was happening to you? You were sort of waking with like all the stuff that was on your mind? Is that like, I mean, I know you're waking to feed or whatever, but. yeah keeping you awake with its stuff to do
2: yeah i think it was pure survival mode and cortisol and that stress hormone so you wake up and of course it's like a bit of a jarring unnatural wake right because you're waking um to a stimulus that's that's not your own body just saying ah you've had enough sleep now and then that adrenaline rush and that cortisol rush just kind kind of spikes that whole process of our sympathetic nervous system into that fight or flight mode. And it's thinking about all the things you have to do or the things that you didn't get done or worrying about things I would wake up in the morning and be like, why was I even worried about that? And it's that irrationality and that emotional um, roller coaster that we ride, I think throughout the night, that once we do get a bit more sleep can settle.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: For sure. Could we, I think maybe as
1: we get into this conversation, it would be really good at the start to frame you know, what the importance is for sleep, you know, physiologically and the importance it is for, you know, health and disease and Mm -hmm. just our lives in general. Mm -hmm. And also maybe framing, you know, what good sleep is, like what, what should people be looking for and maybe going over some of that sleep architecture. Right.
2: Right. So normal sleep architecture um, is quite a complex process and the most, I guess, effective way to assess this is actually in the sleep lab. So it's really hard for us as, as humans and as individuals to really um, get a good objective understanding if we've had a good night's sleep other than feeling like we've actually woken up rested, right? Otherwise, we don't really know how we've gone through the whole sleep cycle. But typically um, in adults, a sleep cycle will last about 90 minutes and we go through REM or rapid eye movement first, which is when we're dreaming. And then we go through one, two, three and stage four non-REM sleep and both of those types of sleep sleep stages and qualities are really important. And so what we know is that non REM or NREM sleep um, does a really great job at essentially like detoxing our brain and cleaning up a lot of the unnecessary neural connections we've made over the day and also inviting something called our glymphatic system um, into play, which is basically just like a huge washing out of our brain because it is so metabolically active that at the end of the day, we got to get the crap out, right? stuff that we don't need and that only happens like a brain car wash yeah it's like a brain car wash yeah Yeah. and that only happens when we sleep and so then in the REM stages we have a really great strengthening of those neural connections that we need and we also have a whole process to kind of wash out that noradrenaline which is the brain's uh, version of adrenaline so that we can be more emotionally regulated and sound during the next day and there's so many complex processes of sleep that help regulate things like our immune system, our appetite control, our uh, ability to fight off cancer and things like diabetes and uh, anxiety and the list goes on and on and on. Alzheimer's so, is huge. Alzheimer's is so huge. It's yeah. Pregnancy. And, and it comes back to that glymphatic system and cleaning up the brain and getting rid of some of those proteins that we know build up in, in Alzheimer's. So mm-hmm. um, I think the list of the benefits and and the necessity of sleep could go on and on and on. We could spend an entire podcast just talking about that. Um, but what we do know, I guess, flipping it on the other side, is that we're just not getting enough. And I think 100 years ago, less than 2% of the population was sleeping on six hours or less a night. And now it's like more than 30 30%, I think, of Americans, we tend to have American statistics, are sleeping less than six hours. Evolution does not work that fast, right? Like it we work in years, no. No, we're not supposed to have such mas- massive shifts and changes happen that quickly. So I think the increase in incidence in chronic disease from diabetes to cancer um, to digestive issues, like we could talk a whole lot about that, really comes from not getting enough. And
1: so, six hours, I believe, is considered a sleep deficit.
2: Yeah, and that's that's not unusual for the average adult to say. Yeah, I go to bed around midnight and I get up at six a.m. or eleven to five or something like that. When you factor in commuting schedules and family responsibilities, and sleep's not
1: something you can uh, bank, right? Yeah, you can't. You can't
2: have a sleep deficit over a week and then sleep it off on the weekends. Exactly, the brain doesn't recapture the same benefit that uh, it does if you're getting eight hours a night over the full week versus shorter amounts, Monday to Friday and then binging on the weekend. So we might try, right? We try to get that extra sleep on the weekend, um, but we're not necessarily getting the full payback.
1: For sure. Um, why don't we, how, so, so, uh, you know, a woman or a patient comes in, how are you assessing their sleep? What, what, what are some of the factors you're looking at? You know, nat- naturopaths are really good at, uh, you know, taking a history and looking at all the factors that are contributing. Mm-hmm. And I actually love that your bachelor of science is in forensic science. Yeah. So, uh, which which suits NDs really well. So what forensic science are you doing on your patient's sleep issues? It's
2: always about putting the pieces of those puzzle that puzzle together, right? So I will always ask about sleep and just say, tell me about it, how, how are you sleeping? And that usually comes from the fact that most of our patients, and I'm sure you can both say the same, come in with a chief complaint of feeling tired, right? Like who doesn't want more energy these days? And so um, commonly patients will say, I don't sleep well and we'll go through that process of okay what are you doing in the evening leading up to bedtime so what's your bedtime routine if you have one Um, how long does it take you to fall asleep and it should really be 20 minutes or less like your head should hit the pillow and you should fall asleep quickly are you waking up at night and if so when and how long are you awake for and why are you waking up and then what's going on from a life cycle or life stage process too because we know like we, you've talked about in some of the past podcasts that hormonal influences are huge on um, every aspect of our health. So especially through things like new mamahood um, but even more so I think through perimenopause women will experience a lot of sleep disturbances and we can talk about why that is and, um, and then we need to look at a hormonal panel and, and understand what's going on there as well. I think there's also a lot to to do here with some digestive issues too. Um and when we look at the times that people are waking up and what's going on with their digestive system it's, a, it's an interesting connection there.
0: Yeah, what are what are some patterns you've seen? So
2: (laughs) we forget, I think a lot of the time, or maybe we don't know, our patients don't know that the majority of our immune system is in our gut, right? And so sleep plays such an integral role at helping our immune system function and repair and regenerate our, our whole body and fight infection that when somebody has chronic digestive issues or some really nasty gut bugs or imbalanced gut flora, Um, That's it's an inflammatory process, right? And anytime we're experiencing inflammation, we're going to have cortisol come in and try to fight that and cortisol being our main stress hormone, but it also being a little bit anti inflammatory, right? And so we'll see that shunt in cortisol pick up either before bedtime or overnight when those gut bugs can become a little bit more active. And then we'll have that patient be waking up and, and they're a little bit more sensitive and, and overstimulated by that cortisol. They wake up thinking, oh, I'm distressed. I have something on my mind. And, and those thoughts replay and, and run over and over. Um, but there can be some underlying reasons why that's, that's happening, right? So when we heal the gut, we'll see sleep improve tremendously as well.
1: I'd never really linked that before.
2: Yeah. It's fascinating. Right. Or, and then we can drive it even further to say like, well, blood sugar. Um, and so when we sleep, right, we're fasting and for some people, whether they're just not consuming enough protein during the day, or maybe they're insulin resistant and having a whole issue, um, processing their sugar. So go back to Mary's podcast for that. Um, then, you know, you could be waking up because your blood sugar is actually dropping cortisol Mm -hmm. is going to be released. And then, to ultimately bring that blood sugar back into balance to give you a little bit of fuel, but you're not running from that lion, tiger, or bear. And so we think we are mentally, you wake up, you're stimulated again. And uh, it's, it's tough to sometimes turn down that nervous system.
1: For sure. Um, What, uh, so maybe you can ask that next question, Dave, but I just wanted to just as a a wrap up to kind of this part of understanding sleep and how you're assessing it. Um, what, you, what are some of the factors that you look at? I'm sure a lot of people listening are in one of two general camps. Either they can't fall asleep mm-hmm. or they can't stay asleep. Right. So you've listed a couple ideas of why people might be waking up in the middle of the night. So blood sugar dysregulation, um, you know, inflammation, stress, worry, um, some gut stuff. What are some other reasons why uh, there's more of a sleep onset
2: insomnia? This is huge and I think it really comes down to something, I don't know if this term exists, but I kinda coined it as light leg. And so we're all familiar with the concept of jet leg, right? You travel a time zone and your your body is is just out of whack because you're you're trying to fall asleep or stay awake in a different time zone than your body is actually in. So light lag occurs because we're essentially a dark-deprived society, right? The three of us right now are staring. I've got two computer screens in front of me. We're often on our phones. Uh, We have TVs and we have these things called LED light bulbs that emit, uh, are super efficient, but emit a huge amount of blue light. And blue light is that light that hits our eyes and hits our retina. Then travels into our brain and hits this really cool uh, bunch of nerve cells called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And then it's going to tell our pineal gland if it's light, right, and daytime or if it's dark and nighttime. And as we go throughout our day, we're supposed to experience decreasing amounts of blue light. But for so many of us, even though we might work into the evening, let's say, we're experiencing more and more. So the screens that we're exposed to will just tell our, essentially artificially tell our bodies and our brains that it's still daytime. Made even worse is that you're then going home and after dinner, say, spending some time on your computer or phone or tablet or something like that. So I saw. A- pizza. Oh, sorry. You can go. No, I was just going to say, for somebody who's experiencing that sleep onset, it's often because their melatonin, which is that key hormone that helps us uh, get ready and to initiate the timing of sleep, just isn't being produced in high enough amounts. And it's what's interesting about it is there was a study where they looked at having people read on an iPad versus a regular old-fashioned paper book. And reading on an iPad before bed can depress your melatonin production by up to 50%. And that isn't just for that night when they tracked the melatonin production over three subsequent nights. There was still an after effect, which is fascinating. So I think if we're essentially always being exposed to this blue light, um, we're not really getting that normal circadian rhythm of it's daytime, it's nighttime. It's time to be awake. It's time to be asleep. And so we're essentially just artificially kind of keeping ourselves awake way longer than we should be.
0: So is there any... uh uh seasonality then with this because you know where we live mm-hmm. um at least the, the, the latitudes that we're at then we get you know way more dark in, mm-hmm. in the fall and the winter so i mean i'm just throwing this question at you i hope that's okay but yeah just not you know because we're ex- exposed to way less light probably yeah that yep that's
2: right yeah and people notice that um their energy is typically lower in the winter, right? And that has many different contributing factors, but I think it's part of it. We're meant to rest more in the winter, right? We're supposed to essentially almost hibernate and um, eat more fat and really do less activity, right? Um, so it, it is an interesting connection. But because we've manipulated our environment so much, so I think we've probably lost much of that seasonality unless we go to some of those hunter gatherer tribes that still exist. But they tend to be equatorial, right? They tend to live along the equator. So they have a relatively constant body clock of, of daylight and nighttime.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. Can you just can you just um, move on and tell us a little bit uh, how maybe some of your patients may be sort of frustrated, like what they're coming in saying that, you know, some of the dismissive sort of things that may be said to someone like a new mom or 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 uh, in that position where they're maybe looking after kids all the time. Yeah. And their husband. maybe.
2: (laughs) I think people are just kind of dismissed and often told, well, your blood work is fine right your iron is okay your vitamin b12 is okay your thyroid your tsh all those and then we don't even dive into deeper things typically through um, conventional medicine looking at things like vitamin d uh, or hormones even in depth and so i think when we say when patients are frustrated because they look at it from a standpoint of well my doctor says my tests are normal my blood work is normal i i sleep i'm in bed right and that's the other thing that people confuse is time spent in bed versus time spent actually asleep. And so they don't make the connection between the fact that they're not sleeping enough or their quality of sleep during the time that they are sleeping isn't high enough. And then compounded by, you know, poor nutrition or actual frank deficiencies in certain nutrients. It's kind of uh, well, you know, you're, yeah, you're getting in bed for six to eight hours a night. It, you're working a lot, you have three kids, you're gonna be tired, of course, but. <clears throat> I think there's ways that we can intervene, right? And we can help support our patients' biochemistry and physiology so that they they don't feel like they're just dragging themselves through every day.
0: And about um, the biochemistry or the biochemical soup, I call it, that people live in, like, what are the sort of tests that you'd like to see, either from their MD or, or that you run? What are the sort of tests you'd like to see to give you an idea of the biochemical soup that they're living in?
2: The soup. So if someone comes in and tells me that they're tired, I like to look at three things. So obviously, I'm gonna ask them how they're sleeping, we go through that conversation. Um, I wanna know how they're eating, and I think that's a really important assessment because we do need to look at blood sugar control and regulation um, from both a subjective perspective and then objectively, I wanna look and see how are they managing their blood sugar? Because if they are hypoglycemic or if they are insulin resistant, that is gonna play a huge ability um, or play a huge role on them being able to manage daytime energy and then nighttime sleep. And then, of course, if you're feeling super tired and, and deficient, what are vitamin B12 levels? What are iron levels and an iron panel? What does that look like? What is the patient's vitamin D and thyroid function? So that full kind of complete, not just TSH, but also looking at the free thyroid hormones that are being produced. If we can jump Almost back to good. vitamin Yeah. Hormones. Mm -hmm. And then if we can jump back to vitamin D for a second, I think it's such an important surrogate marker because somebody might come in and say like we do their blood work and, and they're deficient in vitamin D. But what that means is like they're deficient in nature right? They're deficient in sunlight. <laughs> they're actually not getting outside and not getting that sun exposure on their skin to produce enough vitamin D, which is probably going to mean that they're also serotonin deficient, right? They're not getting that boost in their mood mood and immune system that can naturally happen when we actually just spend time outdoors. And it can help regulate our nervous system and sympathetic nervous system and all of those things. So vitamin D is, is so simple. It's like, what, I think it's, it's less than $40, right? It's like 36 or something like that to test through us in mm-hmm. Ontario. Um, but it gives us so much information and it plays so many key roles in our health. And I think it's a key one to, to, to order and to run, um, especially if a patient is noticing more of that fatigue and low mood, especially something like seasonal annual depression and sleep disturbances over the winter. Um, I do like to run a lot of comprehensive hormone panels on my women patients who are struggling through their cycles for some reason or the other who are perimenopausal and that really just comes down to looking at that estrogen progesterone ratio which can influence body temperature and mood and ultimately sleep. Which is why those uh, women who um, in that
1: perimenopausal stage are really having a, a tough time sleeping.
2: Yeah, absolutely. When you look at somebody who's having, you know, five or six night sweats. Um, waking up, throwing the covers off, and then interplay life stressors that happen at that time, of course, it's going to be a tough time maintaining that sleep, right? For sure.
1: So I'd love to shift into some, um, you know, get down to some naturopathic solutions um, for sleep and really go over some of the foundational things that our listeners can really solidify, even maybe before seeing you know, you or, yeah. one or one of us or their yeah. MD, um, because I always say to my patients, you know, there's things we can do at night for your sleep, but your sleep problems are solved in the day. Mm-hmm. And so let's go over some of those factors that, that yeah. really will make a difference to the sleep.
2: Yep. And we have to think of sleep as a 24 hour process, right? Mm-hmm. Because like you said, sleep, how you optimize your sleep begins with how you wake up and what you do for the eight to 16 hours you're awake for, and then for the eight or more hours that you're hopefully sleeping at night, right? And so what happens when we are seeing our patients in this vicious cycle is they're waking up probably earlier than ideal, and the first thing they reach for is the cup of coffee, which I love coffee, I I, uh, have to admit, Um, but too much is not always a good thing. So when we drink caffeine, we are suppressing something called adenosine. And adenosine is this key uh, chemical that is in our nervous system and in our brain especially that drives our our sleep pressure, right? So if we aren't caffeinated and if we've been awake for a long time, then we'll have a huge amount of this molecule and chemical build up in our nervous system to actually make us feel sleepy and tired. Caffeine will block that from happening. So it blocks adenosine. So we have ourselves waking up in the day and maybe drinking a little bit more or less uh, of coffee to feel a little bit more energized. We're on receptive mode all day, right? We're talking to people, we're getting tons of emails and text messages, we're interacting at our work, we're driving and we have to pay attention when we're commuting. Um, it's not really until the end of the day when we probably rush through and maybe skip some meals or just grab something on the go that is less than ideal from a nutritional standpoint that we've had a chance to actually stop and so when your brain and body actually get the the chance to slow down which is usually when most people hit the pillow at night it's like this bottleneck effect of thoughts and feelings and emotions right and then it's all the things i did do all the things i didn't do all the things i have to do tomorrow um and the way that i'm feeling about this that and the other thing that happened so when we can actually start to insert imagine this breaks in our day, like imagine. just like take a lunch break people, come on. So when we actually take 10 minutes to just check in with ourselves during the day and, and break and eat and eat at a relatively slower pace maybe, um, and kind of bookmark some of those things that might be bugging us or stressing us out and, and maybe even get out for a quick walk outside to kind of decompress or implement some form of stress management, which exercise is a great tool, right, for that on um, from a sleep perspective. Um so basically to sum it, it's like when we're always in go 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 mode and driving our kids around to a million activities and and not really taking a chance to slow down, it's very hard for us to then optimize sleep because our nervous systems just aren't getting the chance to settle and balance.
1: I love the visual of that, like that, just that pressure that builds up in the day and at the sacrifice of the sleep. So even, you know, stress and worry and anxiety that's building up and the bottleneck is that sleep or even biochemically that adenosine needs to build up and up and up in order to sleep at night. And so Mm -hmm. that's how coffee is affecting our sleep. What about nutritionally? What is, what are the nutritional factors that build up in the day that affect our sleep?
2: I think an insufficient amount of protein and healthy fat is huge, right? Because our standard American or SAD diet um, is, is really overwhelmingly in favor of carbohydrates. And so when we aren't getting enough protein and healthy fat, our blood sugar just isn't balanced. And then what happens? It crashes, we feel tired, we reach for a coffee and a sugary snack. And then that makes us feel temporarily energized and pushes that adenosine pressure away. But then we'll experience that crash again, and and it's a vicious cycle, right? So I really like to make sure that my patients are getting an optimal balance of those macronutrients, especially protein and healthy fat, right? Um, It just keeps coming back to that all the time. And that ultimately helps us build a healthier brain and blood sugar management system. And then we can sustain that eight or longer hour period of fasting overnight too, right? Because we have healthy glycogen stores to draw on.
0: And there's some, <clears throat> there's some interesting evidence on uh, like glial cells actually prefer lactate. So I just thought I'd bring in maybe mm. some exercise and maybe why people who exercise probably sleep better. There's a lot more lactate uh, going on. And, and so I have a friend who's a, he's a chemical engineer, PhD in, uh, in Saudi, and he's, he does mathematical models. And he's working with a medical doctor who's looking at how glial cells actually prefer lactate for Amazing. energy, which is really interesting. Cause probably uh, most of our patients who exercise well, sleep yep. better, would that be like a generalized?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think it, it's a full cycle. So when we exercise, I think it's part of a bigger picture because then we're more likely to be managing our stress. We're more likely to be eating better and we're more likely to actually be expending energy. <laughs> instead of sitting all day right so we actually get the physical exhaustion that happens at the end of the day to actually sleep well and what's interesting is when we get a good night's sleep and measure people's exercise performance the following day it's way better so it might be that sleep actually has more of a beneficial impact on exercise than vice versa but in either Mm -hmm. way it's always a positive cycle right Mm mm-hmm
0: The key is is not to exercise too
2: closely to bed right so we want to make sure you're not exercising ideally um, within three to four hours of bedtime because that will do a couple of things it will increase your cortisol stress hormone in a good way um, but that can essentially just leave you feeling wired and it will increase your core body temperature which we need to drop for you to maintain an optimal sleep
0: and then i assume you're pro meditation or pro mindfulness of some sort can you maybe give us an idea of when when you would recommend doing that or any specifics on on meditation or mindfulness of any kind?
2: Meditation and mindfulness have a huge amount of increasing research in behind them now, really showing the benefit it can have on our nervous system and our stress and our sleep and our mood and our immune system and, and all kinds of things. So I have no doubt that the research supports it. We need people to find a way anyway to, to build it into their day, right? So uh taking a break like i said if we can actually insert it during our day and sometimes that means just <laughs> spending a couple extra minutes in a bathroom if you need to at work like i have these patients who just tell me they can't get away from their work <laughs> uh, that makes and, the guy happy right <laughs> yeah and just like sit there and take a couple deep breaths on the toilet if you have to
1: <laughs> I mean, there no, there's no mom out there who hasn't said kids I need to go to the washroom. Do not come in. To- and you really yeah. don't have to go to the washroom, but you just need like two yeah. minutes to
2: the locked door.
0: Yeah. And- my dad spent like 40 minutes sometimes. I think that's what he was doing. He was probably. <laughs> <laughs>
2: probably. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right and when when we say meditation i think it invokes this picture of us sitting cross-legged you know in the on position and zenning out for this long time like it doesn't have to be that it literally just has to be 20 seconds of deep breathing when you're alone for a second taking the stairs instead of the elevator so and maybe count the stairs as you're walking up them right like just becoming a little bit more mindful during our day can really help Um, help us just stay focused and a little bit calmer and when something spikes our nervous system and we start to feel anxious dealing with it then is great if we can but maybe bookmarking it to come back and being like okay what is it that's bugging me about that situation and then later in the day I think is is a great way to insert a practice because you know as as moms and gong like mornings are gong shows right (laughs) like your kids are up whenever and they're doing whatever and you're just trying to to put something in your mouth in their mouth and get out the door um so i think at the end of the day you know patients always say well my kids are in bed i want that time for me the best thing you can do for yourself then is take some time to be introspective and go to bed a little bit earlier right And that could be just expressing a bit of gratitude through a gratitude journal. I really love the five minute journal for patients for that reason. Um, Using something like the Muse headband, if that's something you're into or doing a guided, using a guided meditation app or just lying there and counting your breaths before falling asleep.
0: You said something about uh, bookmarking and I thought that was uh, a good segue into talking about maybe just writing something down before bed. I saw, um, I don't know if you know Daniel Pink, but he does the pink cast. And one thing he was talking about was just sort of ending his day with mm-hmm. like something inspirational that he heard either from his own brain or from someone else. And, and just sort of using it as a way to close the chapter of the yeah. day.
2: Yeah. Can you talk a little so bit about, about maybe it. doing
0: something at night.
2: Yeah. Because at, at the end of the day, we're trying, we need to decompress, right? We need to um, let things go that happen during the day. So we, can focus on the negative, which becomes a very easy cycle to get into, or we can focus on the positive. And we know that when we focus on the positive and express gratitude and record inspirational ideas, those types of neural connections are strengthened. And then we might fall asleep easier and have an easier time staying asleep because we've essentially kind of dumped our brain, right? Like brain dumping is huge before bed. Even if it's just writing a to-do list for the following day, it gets it outside of your head and on paper. And that is a very different process for our nervous system to implement than just think over and over and over and over, right? So I do think that any form of mindfulness or recording, journaling, um, expressing is so much more powerful than than just replaying it over in our mind.
0: Yeah, even uh, David Allen, the guy who did getting things done he's he said the brain is for thinking it's not for like remembering things and that's one of his main things for relieving anxiety like it sounds like you're super organized and boring but the whole idea of writing things down on paper is to free up some ram for creative thought and like that freedom or or lack of anxiety that can come from just using your brain for day-to-day stuff that comes up as opposed to keeping you know using it as a memory bank
2: yeah, and at the end of the day, we so often reach decision fatigue, right? You've made so many mm-hmm. choices um, th- to get through your day that it's so much easier when we face the next day with a blank slate. And so essentially wiping that day, like like the same thing of having a hot shower or, or warm bath at the end of the day, which can help sleep by dropping your core body temperature, which is a little bit counterintuitive, but we can think about that or we can talk about that as a part of a good bedtime routine. Yeah. Um, but it, it helps us literally get rid of the stuff that we don't need. And then sleep ultimately solidifies those connections we do need for memory and for emotional regulation and consolidation, right?
0: Yeah. So we talked about some like harder stuff that we ask people to do, you know, like yeah. you know, some people have resistance to that. Maybe we could talk about a couple easy things, like a couple easy hits yeah. that you might uh, recommend for herbs or, or nutritional therapeutics that you might uh, recommend.
2: Yeah, so I always break things down into kind of an external and internal environment, right? So it tends to be a little bit easier for people to manipulate their external environment to start with than their internal environment. So the one thing to start really thinking about is that light lag and how much light are you exposed to, especially later in the day? And where can you manipulate that in a positive way? So maybe after dinner, turn off all of your overhead lights and actually use low-level lighting like lamps, um, candles, mood lighting. It's huge. It mimics the sun setting, which is more of a red light and light on the horizon instead of this overhead blue light that is the burning, blazing sun of midday.
0: That is so cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm going to try that. Yeah, and,
2: and you can even get um, these really cool melatonin supportive light bulbs. There's a company called Lighting Sci- Lighting Science, and it's a it's a much more yellow light, and it blocks a lot of that blue light from our environment um, to help support that process. Avoiding technology, ideally at least two hours before bed. If you have to use it, like computer or phone for work, you can turn your phone and often your computer screen down, the lighting down, and even on nighttime mode, so it does block some of that blue light. And you can get these really cool blue light blocking glasses that can help block that light even more so. And turning down the temperature in your body and your home is a really easy way to help lower that core body temperature, which helps us stay asleep longer and achieve a deeper stage of sleep. Um, So the recommendation there is typically 18 degrees Celsius. Um, That is cold in air conditioning, right? So I, I don't think we need that typically in the summer. I think somewhere around like 21 if you're sleeping in no or very light pajamas or just a, a sheet or, and a fan on or something like that in the winter Maybe. and in- I think there's, good, there's good science actually that you yeah naked sleeping is better quality it's better. Sleeping. Yeah and um, and then in the winter you know letting your your house go down uh, to a, a lower temperature is, is not only energy efficient but it does help you sleep because it allows your core body temperature to drop, which we need to initiate and, and maintain.
0: Sleep. And like, I mean, how many times do we have to just go, what would we do in nature? What is it? It's colder at night. We are right. products of earth. It only makes sense.
2: Yeah. And you can have a hot shower or bath before bed, which will help that vasodilation or that expansion of your blood vessels to the surface so that you dissipate heat easier. And and again, in nature, like why do we wash our hands and splash our face with, with warm water before bed? Because those are the most vascular areas of our bodies that when we Bring blood flow to that area with that warm water we can dissipate heat more effectively and efficiently right um and the same thing with nature like it's colder at night it's darker at night so really getting rid of electronics from the bedroom like tv should not be in your bedroom you want to have more energy you want to have better sex you want to live longer take the tv out like it's so simple but not, I get it. it. It's a big pattern that people have, um, but but just do it, and and even to the point where you might even need to consider getting rid of clock faces if you're really struggling with sleep. There's there's really only two things that should happen in your bed, right? We all know yes. what they are. Two and grou- we both start with S. Yeah. Two, two groups, groups of, of things. Two groups of things. The specifics maybe are yeah. Sleep and yeah. sex. Is what your bed is for. Yeah um and then from i guess a you know people come in and they always want to take something right so um if we could maybe just chat quickly about sleeping medication and then kind of maybe compare it to our naturopathic toolbox yeah because i'm sure that's the
1: solution that most of i mean your patients and and mine in particular that's really the the most common solution that they yeah
2: And I would even say some people are, are confused by the fact that they think they have insomnia because they're going to bed when they're not actually tired enough to fall asleep because they're staring at a screen all night. And then you, you've you had all these things happen. And, and it's just like, like it's so obvious for kids. Like you would never throw your kid in front of a TV and have them run around and then be like, okay, it's bedtime, go to sleep right? Like we don't do that. We incorporate a bedtime routine and we help them relax and decompress. So the same thing for us. And then, um, when our melatonin isn't coming in at the right time, we're going to bed when we're not tired and we're trying to fall asleep when really we should be waiting until we're tired enough to fall asleep and then going to bed. So a really great analogy by Matthew Walker, who's written a fantastic book called why we sleep, um, is that you would never sit at your dinner table waiting to get hungry right? You would never do that. And so why do you go to bed when you're not tired? Try to fall asleep. You need to wait um, so that you fall asleep faster. So one, I think a lot of people think that they have insomnia when they might just be mistiming their bedtime. And, and two, um, sleep medication is essentially misnamed when we refer to it in that way, because really it's just a sedative. And there's no medication to date that has been uh, identified to induce normal sleep architecture and normal sleep patterns. Can you
0: repeat that, no, please? Repeat I that, think that's, that's very, very important. <laughs> please
2: repeat there, that. Let's repeat that. So, that to date, there has been no sleep medication identified that can induce natural sleep architecture. So, we are being sedated. We are not being put to sleep. And that's huge because that means all of the benefits on our immune system and on our memory and on our emotions Um are not happening when we're on sleeping medication. And there's some really scary statistics when we actually look at it. And and like, I'm not making this up, this is public knowledge, it's really easy to find. But um, about 10 million Americans are using a sleeping aid, right? and when we look at what that means, most improvements when you're on a sleeping medication are actually subjective, which means you think you're falling asleep faster and staying asleep longer, but you're not, when we actually measure it in a laboratory setting you don't have the natural sleep architecture particularly the deep stages of sleep Um, and then people who are taking sleeping medication are more likely to die across study periods when we've looked at it so you're you're five times more likely to die from using a sleeping medication as to someone who um who isn't when you when you're using them Uh, like the, when you increase amount of sleeping pills used over the course of a year, but it's, it's not even just those people who are using them every night. Like if you're using about 18 per year, which is one, one or two sleeping pills a night or sorry, a month, um, it's still like one or or two times as likely to just die period as to those compared to those people who aren't.
0: Um, is there any benefit Leah to having us like now I, I hesitate to ask the question even from what you just told me, but is there any benefit to like forcing a sleep once in a while when the option is just for that person in the short term? Cause we know short term versus yeah. long term, you know, yep. life's a marathon, all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. But in the short term, is there any, uh, benefit or whatever for someone to have a, uh, Zopa clone or something? Which yeah. Would, if I find a lot of people just knocks them right out. Yeah. Um, there any benefit for that versus not sleeping at all?
2: I think the benefit would lie in our ability to actually function somewhat more the following day. Like I think functioning after being somewhat sedated versus not sedated at all could be beneficial. The risk with that is the time, right? So like, when are you trying to function? Because a lot of people will have essentially like a groggy hangover effect from sleeping medication. But what are they doing? They're grabbing a coffee and, and jumping on the road and to commute mm-hmm. to their job, right? Which is essentially drowsy driving is is more dangerous than drunk driving. Um, when you're tired and you have these things called micro-sleeps, you can fall asleep really quickly at the wheel and not even realize it, your reaction time is zero because you are asleep. When you're drunk driving, your reaction time is delayed. So you're more likely to do something. I'm not encouraging drunk driving by any means, but um, the comparison, right, is for people, like we all know we shouldn't drink and drive, but how many people are driving under the influence of sleep deprivation? Mm -hmm. So I think- Go ahead.
1: No, no, you finished the shot. I was just going to say, like, when
2: we we think about, um, we just think we can push through, basically, right? We think we can take the sleeping medication at night to just somewhat knock us out because we're too overwhelmed to deal with all the shit we have on our plate. And then we wake up in the morning and we're going to chug a couple coffees, skip our breakfast, go, 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 not take a lunch, hit an afternoon wall, have another coffee, not feel tired enough at night to sleep because that caffeine is still surging through our system let's take a sleeping pill and go again. So that's not the ideal chronic cycle, but if we need it once in a while, or if you look at somebody in, in the midst of a crisis, emotional crisis or something like that, being sedated and, and having some form of sleep may help them get through that really difficult period. But long-term, I think we really need to question the use.
1: Yeah. And and long-term too, You that, those are staggering statistics, just about increased risk of just
2: yeah, and we know that right. because it's like, why? So why are we dying if we're using sleeping pills, right? It's You're more likely to have an infection, a serious infection. Um, the Car fatalities are huge, so you're more likely to be involved in a car accident. Um, and you're more likely to develop cancer, right? And I think that comes back to the immune system piece. So,
0: and then you, com- you, so couple that with the first point you said, which sort of shocked me, is that people don't objectively have better sleep sometimes. They actually just yeah, think they did. So you've got something, you've got like this, you know, because what we believe and what we think is pretty pervasive in mm-hmm. what we do. Mm-hmm.
2: If they think mm-hmm.
0: they're feeling better, that's a, yeah. that's a barrier too. That's
1: huge. You've also got the, the long term side effect of sleep medications is actually memory impairment and memory memory loss. And then right. couple that with with the risk of of Alzheimer's or dementia mm-hmm. with with
2: sleep deficit over the long term. That's a yeah. pretty and, and we know that because, again, like the medication isn't inducing natural sleep and natural sleep helps with memory consolidation and washing out our brain. And so in a good way, <laughs> brainwashing in a good way. And so um, we're not getting that. What are we seeing? This huge increase in things like Alzheimer's, right, which affects twice as many women as men and insert estrogen deficiency, like, right? It's full circle, which is why I think as naturopathic doctors, we do such a great job at assessing our patient as a whole person is what it always comes back to, right? Um, Because there's no one thing, this is like the common thread through all these podcasts, there's no one thing. People come in with trouble sleeping, but it's not just that, right? There's so much else out there. So then when we transition and say like, okay, what can we do from a lifestyle and maybe a naturopathic standpoint the world health organization has identified sleep deprivation as a global endemic right like it is a problem and the national institute of health i think or the national sleep institute has done a ton of research and really identified that there's this thing called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia or cbti which should be the first line of of treatment for patients suffering from either sleep onset, so trouble falling asleep, or sleep maintenance insomnia. Mm -hmm. And so it basically is about an eight week or eight step program that helps walk you through a lot of the things that we've talked about. So you don't go to bed until you're tired enough to fall asleep. If you wake up at night and you are awake To awake to fall back asleep quickly, you actually need to get out of bed and you need to go and do something quiet and relaxing until that sleep pressure builds and you can go back and get into bed and fall asleep. And keeping your bedtime and wake up time constant is really important. Of those two, even more so important is the the wake time, even on weekends. So if you can get up at the same time every day, um, even after you've had a bad night's sleep, then allow that sleep pressure to build the following day try to avoid napping, and then you're really tired and you're more likely to fall asleep faster and stay asleep longer the following night, right? We can use caffeine, but I think we have to use it um, within reason, and so if we have that one to two cups earlier in the day, you might be fine. It takes the average person about five to six hours for half of that caffeine to to be out of their system, right? So if you have a cup of coffee at at seven o'clock in the morning, most of it is gonna be out of your system 12 hours later, so seven o'clock at night. If you're pushing through and you're having a coffee at 2 p.m., then, I mean, we're looking at the middle of the night before, Like only half of that coffee is only out of your system by 8 p.m. And you're trying to go to bed at 10, like it, it's gonna be hard, right? Um, and then a lot of the things we talked about, so using low lighting, dropping your temperature, avoiding technology and screen time before bed, making your room really dark. It's really easy, like blackout blinds if you can, one of those cheapy airline eye masks. Like if you've ever flown, just just keep that and cover up your eyes and get used to that darkness. Um, and then it, it can, those small changes can have a huge impact on your sleep. But I think where we're going to get the biggest return of investment is when we do a lot of that internal work and really understand that sleep deprivation affects our nervous system and our modern day life affects our nervous system. And when we can do more there to relax and brain dump and avoid some of those stimulants and and depressants like the, the mix of caffeine and alcohol, our nervous system is going to be able to regulate our sleep much more effectively.
0: Okay, Leah, I want to give you a couple rapid fire. I'll just give you a couple like keywords and if you okay. can just go on about it for a little bit because you you did such a thorough sort of uh, prep for us that I want to be able to use that. So awesome. Hit me. Uh, the first one I would say is uh, you said sleep pressure. Mm-hmm. What is sleep pressure?
2: Sleep pressure is mostly from that chemical we talked about called adenosine, which will build in our brain and nervous system over the course of the day as long as we're not overusing caffeine. And when we reach about 14 to 16 hours after our wake up time, our sleep pressure will be at its highest. So if you're waking up at 6 a.m., that means that you should essentially be going to bed somewhere between 8 and 10 p.m. at night.
0: Okay. Sleep divorce.
2: Sleep divorce. All right. You Uh might be married to somebody who has a completely different sleep schedule than you or who just has less than optimal sleep patterns. And this is a tough one, because when we treat uh, insomnia in one patient, it often is connected to somebody else, right? So you may need a sleep divorce if your partner is ruining your sleep. And that could be because they watch TV and keep that on while you wanna fall asleep. They snore, they have sleep apnea, they get up earlier than you to go to a job. Um, If your partner is sufficiently affecting your sleep to the point where you're sleep deprived, you may need to consider sleeping in separate bedrooms. A
0: sleep and that's divorce.
2: tough. Yeah, you need a sleep divorce. You need to sleep separately so that you don't get an actual divorce. Because what happens when we don't get enough sleep, <laughs> right? Like, well, okay, here's a, here's a stat. For every one extra hour of sleep that women get a night, they're 15% more likely to want to have sex the next day or to have sex the next day. I'm not sure which it is. Yes. So when we're talking about low libido and like those, those relationship strains, if your husband isn't letting you sleep but wants to have sex, then it's a vicious cycle. So maybe if you sleep separ- separately six days of the week, you can have your night of intimacy, you can right, and and there's still ways of including it so that you um, maybe have time together either when you're going to bed or in the morning if that works because people can have natural naturally different sleep times, right? Um, so just consider that if your partner is ruining your sleep and you hate them <laughs> 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 for that, then maybe you just need to sleep separately so that you can love them the rest of the time. <laughs>
1: and that probably, expect, you know, speaking of new moms, that extends to to a sleep divorce from your kids because yeah. I've had kids that love to be in right? my bed.
2: Yeah, yes. yeah. And even even when, and we could do a whole other podcast on this, but the concept of sleep training, right? Um, when I was kind of in the depths of that sleep deprivation really struggling, my naturopathic doctor said to me, you need to do whatever you can to hack sleep. And that was the game changer for me. And just implementing that healthy sleep routine for our baby and for me really allowed me to, to essentially like get back to, my, to myself, I would say.
0: My next rapid fire is uh, motivation.
2: When patients are motivated, they will change. And that comes down to knowing your purpose and why you want to sleep better, why you want to lose weight, why you want to have more energy right? And so, um, we can throw all, all the things at all the people. Um, but when you know your why, and when you know why you want to show up in the day to do what you love, you're going to do what you have to do.
0: Yeah. We talk about sometimes how medicine or health, I mean, the value of it is that you get to live the life that you want to live. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, less in my view of understanding intrinsic and extrinsic values. It's like, it's really like a extrinsic value it's so that we can not be impeded to live the life that we want to Mm -hmm. live so
1: and just i I would love to i've been just thinking as you've been talking about this you know this you know yin yang you know lightness and darkness um and how the two are required to be to to produce a, a healthy cycle so You know, you need that light or that movement, that yang energy, Mm -hmm. but also that motivation, that fire Mm -hmm. in order to support that more restful, you know, get that out in the day in order to feel at bedtime that you've done your job and led a day on purpose in order to have that more yin, dark, restful Mm -hmm. time as well.
2: Yeah. And I would say for new moms, that's a tough right? Because you feel like all I did today was wash the same dish over and over or or clean up the same toys all over and over or or whatnot. Um, so sometimes in the bigger picture, the balance is periods of being unbalanced, right? Like you, I'm not saying a new mom has to sleep eight hours a night. Like, no, that's not going to happen. Um, but what you have to understand is that you're, you will go through the periods of imbalance for a a bigger reason and for ultimately more balance overall
1: and it does get better and
2: it does get better yeah <laughs> cool yeah and and it and should do- right so th- i think that's the issue if it doesn't there's a problem like you're not yeah. meant to sleep through your baby crying at night but when they're sleeping through the night and you're not we need to talk mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Mm. Yeah. Um, can I do two rapid fire? Qu- they got to be quick. They've got to be quick, but I can't let our listeners, uh, I would be frustrated if we didn't talk about these two things. Okay, hey, go. So the first is, um, and actually Dave and I chatted about this on, you know, from the outline, is bedtime snack.
2: Mm. Okay. So we often think that if we have a bedtime snack, it's the worst thing ever because we're eating before bed and then not moving and it can be a problem for our metabolism. We're going to gain all this weight and whatnot, but our metabolism is more effective when we're not um, balancing our blood sugar overall, right? And so if you are waking up in the night hungry, that's a huge sign. Or if you're typically waking up between 3 and 5 a.m., those are the key signs that your body's blood sugar may be dipping and we need to balance it. So it starts full picture by getting enough protein, healthy fat throughout the day. But sometimes before bed, if you actually have a little snack, something like a handful um, of almonds, walnuts, or you know, um, my favorite is actually putting some collagen protein in a nice sleepy time tea. So something that has something like Mm passion flower or valerian or chamomile or whatever, for two reasons. Collagen protein powder is typically tasteless and textureless. So it dissolves in that tea and you don't even notice that it's there. And it provides you with some protein to actually help stabilize and balance that blood sugar over the course of the night. It's also high in glycine, which is a key amino acid that's calming for our nervous system and plays a role in that inhibitory process of slowing down on our thoughts and inducing those deeper brain waves. So it can have a beneficial impact there too. Fantastic. Yeah, it's one of, one of the
1: times when I, I recommend a bedtime snack, which isn't often, but uh, it it can be really effective.
2: And anyone who's tried to go to bed hungry knows that it's so hard, if not impossible, to fall asleep, right? Sure.
1: So uh, the the last rapid fire, which might not be so rapid, but I don't think that we can talk about sleep without addressing um, just taking melatonin. So exogenous, actually supplementing melatonin before bed.
2: For sure, so melatonin is a really uh, important hormone because it it tells our body when it's time to initiate sleep, but it actually doesn't do a whole lot for generating sleep itself, which is a a common misconception. So the most effective way that melatonin can be used is when you are jet lagged. So when you're actually traveling time zones and you need to adjust that timing of your internal clock to tell your body that it's, it's time to get ready and go to bed. There is a bit of a problem with um, melatonin, like over-the-counter products, because it's unregulated, right? So there can be a a varying degree of the actual dosage compared to what's reported to be on the label. So I always encourage patients to, you know, source out high-quality supplements that are third-party tested for purity and ingredient content and all of that stuff so you actually know what you're getting um, dosage-wise. So most people just need somewhere between a one to three milligram dose um, to help initiate that sleep so or the timing of sleep so it would be somewhere between like 30 minutes or at bedtime you could you could supplement with it um you can also take a form of melatonin called prolonged release melatonin which is more slowly released over your over the course of the night into your bloodstream because melatonin peaks somewhere typically between 2 to 4 a.m. So the goal there is for patients who have trouble staying asleep, if they have more of a sustained release form of melatonin, their body is kind of getting that continual signal that it's it's nighttime, it's time to stay asleep. Um, but interestingly, there's a lot of research outside of the realm of sleep that melatonin, yes. right? It's showing like mm-hmm. impacts on fertility, egg quality, cancer, uh, so many types of cancer. Um, estrogen receptor yeah. modulation
0: i looked into it recently um kind of went in the rabbit hole with melatonin i think there's over 350 clinical trials on melatonin <clears throat> most of them as a neuroprotective uh right mechanism so it's yeah. it's uh an antioxidant it's more than sleep it, it like yeah, it, yeah I, we yeah. all use it for sleep and i think that's sort of uh what we sort of pigeonhole as. but the more i read about it like i said mm-hmm. 350 clinical trials on mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. like that's that's pretty wild so um I think we'll we'll see more about it. And one of the cool sort of tidbits I'll leave it uh, leave here about melatonin is that I got into it uh, because of its indications in tinnitus. Yes. Okay. So yeah, there might be some there might be some utility as someone who can't sleep and has tinnitus. Uh, all the more reason to think about melatonin, maybe.
1: Yeah, and I, uh, I have a snack on ovulation too.
2: Yeah, uh, and, and, and it has melatonin and ovulation. A huge safety profile, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And and I think one of the other beneficial aspects is that it's non-habitual, it's non-addictive. In comparison to any type of sleeping or sedative medication, we know that patients are more likely to become dependent on them because it can cause rebound insomnia, which means you stop taking it and you have a worse worsening of your sleeping patterns than you did at the beginning of when you went to start the medication. In comparison with melatonin. It's very safe, we can use it in kids because again, there's also some some really interesting research in things like autism spectrum disorders and ADHD. And the benefits seem to progress beyond the time that you've taken it. So you can take it for a period of time, stop it, your sleep architecture and sleep patterns stay improved um, without having a negative in any way. I also often get questions
1: of, oh, I, I've been told I shouldn't keep taking melatonin because it will dampen my natural, production, but I think the studies show that uh, it doesn't impact endogenous production once you stop yeah, taking
2: it. Yeah, which is fascinating because I think it's one of the only hormones that works that way, right? Yes. If we supplement with any other hormone, we're going to see our own production of it of it go down. There was also, I think, a Dr. Oz thing where melatonin was dangerous because you're more likely to have vivid dreams and do crazy things. Um, it is likely to cause more vivid dreaming. Um, I think you're. it's partly... Because REM, which is that first stage of sleep when we do dream, is the first what we get into, right? So if we are using melatonin to initiate sleep, then we're going to actually get into that REM sleep maybe more so than we would.
1: Just on our so own. important,
2: which yeah. is what uh, sleep huge. medications don't it's, do. It's
0: rebound REM. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. I looked yeah. into it a bit too. It's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, we should give everyone one takeaway and let Leah go back to saving the people of Uxbridge.
2: Yes. Right? What's one takeaway you would give to ah, our listeners? So one takeaway I think is just that sleep is the foundation of health. And if you want to address any other aspect of your health, whether it's trying to lose weight or get more energy or get pregnant or prevent disease, make sleep a priority and everything yes. else will fall into place. Nice. I um, it, it, When again, Dave loves evolution,
1: but if you think about sleep, there's no, it's not smart evolutionary wise to have us be unconscious for half of the day. Yeah. So there obviously is an important reason yeah. for it. Like we and spend I love. So much time sleeping. There's a purpose. And thank you for uh, just, just dropping some awesome science and like just practical tips and uh, perspectives on sleep for our listeners. I think, I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of this episode.
0: And I'll be referring a lot of a lot of patients to listen to this one I have to say this is like really really uh, great information for anyone before they um, you know think about what they're doing with their doctor uh, on going on another medication or before they're maybe even thinking about seeing a naturopath I always recommend that but like this would be some great core information for Mm -hmm. everyone to know who has any sleeping issues so uh, I think this one will be shared quite a lot. It's such good information, Leah. Thank you so much.
2: Amazing. If we can sleep better, we can live better. So, let's all get more. <laughs> yeah. How do our patients find you? Or sorry, not our patients. Our patients
1: and our sure, listeners. How do they your find patients. you?
2: Uh um, sure. so, <laughs> so, I'm really active on Instagram. My Instagram handle is Dr. Leah L-E-I-G-H-A Saunders N D. Um, I'm a quick search too for Uxbridge Naturopathic Doctor, we'll pull up my info and my clinic is True Roots Healthcare and we have a great clinic here in Uxbridge servicing the local and surrounding community so we'd be happy to help in any way. Super. Fantastic. Maybe we should leave this off with uh, sweet dreams. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This was so much fun and uh, I'm super excited to get all this information out.
0: That Naturopathic Podcast (laughs) TNP Hello there